0: And then the pandemic occurred, and we lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. And then suddenly, we had to like, it was, it was like a house, and it was like burning, and we had to rebuild the house.
1: You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio chafkin Today's episode, Rebuilding a House on Fire. My guest today is the CEO of a company with 6,000 employees around the world, and which has served 1 billion people. (laughs) Rather, it's had 1 billion check-ins. That's because my guest is the co-founder and chief executive of Airbnb, Brian Chesky. Brian is known not just for being the co-founder of a company that carved out a totally new part of the travel and hospitality marketplace— But as a founder who has held on over the years to his ideals, and even when the pandemic essentially turned off global travel and wiped out 80% of his business in eight weeks, Brian didn't hit the off switch. Instead, he turned on something new and redesigned the entire company from the inside out and top down. And then he showed his work to the world, and took the company public. I spoke with Brian about all of these things. But first I asked him, as I do most of my guests, to take a look back to his early life and whether he seemed to be a natural
0: entrepreneur. I was really interested in art and design growing up. And I used to ask Santa for poorly designed toys so I could redesign them. In (laughs) hindsight, that's like an unusual thing, but you you don't know when you're a kid that you're unusual. The first time I was in an airplane, I was seven. I went to St. Louis and I still think I have drawings attempting to try to redesign the city when I got there. So I just have a lot of early memories of like trying to design things differently, improve things, change things before I ever went to school with it or even it occurred to me that that would be a job you would do. For some reason I was just had this weird obsession with doing things differently. For me it was probably more from a design standpoint whereas like I think a lot of like an engineer type would want to build that was more me. Again, these sound some of these traits will sound like not positive traits, but I was a, a disruptor before that was a good term. You know, I was disruptive in elementary school and would you know maybe find myself in the principal's office for disrupting the class. I was very much into like kind of fun pranks and things. and I was very into like public speaking and like performing. When I was in college, I did tons of extracurricular activities. So I think these are all proxies for entrepreneurship, right? Like, I think those who focus most of their energy in class will be less interested in entrepreneurship. Those who focus their energy in extracurricular activities will be. I did, like, my own self-directed art and design study where I went to pre-college programs. I designed, I created a lot of things. So just so many things in my background where, at the time, they didn't look like entrepreneurship, but in hindsight. Also, I was on the web. I was, like, a pretty early person on the web, maybe 94 and I learned HTML, I used the web before Google, before Yahoo, when there were phone books, and you had the phone books had the URL links, and I would build websites for other kids. So I was pretty entrepreneurial in hindsight, but no one, including myself, thought I would be an entrepreneur at that time, because it wasn't even clear that was an available option for me. I did not come from a culture or family of entrepreneurs. My parents were social workers. I mean, I remember as a kid, When I was five years old, I would like be obsessed with Walt Disney and watching The Wonderful World of Disney. And when I was a kid, I wanted to work for Disney and be an animator or do something like that. I never thought I would start a company like Disney. And the fun stat is Airbnb is worth more now than Disney when I was watching those TV programs, just as we're a bigger company than Disney was when I was a kid. And that's just like, no, I would have never occurred to me.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. So let's fast forward. You founded Airbnb in 2007, and that story is quite well known. But it's also fun to sort of think back to the fact that you also were the original Airbnb host, you know, with an air mattress. Um, what do you wish that you had known then that you know now?
0: Somebody once said that starting a company, you build a product, and then you build the engine that builds the product. And the engine is the company. And I think it's really intuitive for founders how to build a product, right? There's a reason why like 22, 23-year-olds are really successful at like having an idea and building an app and then millions of people using it. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying that it happens over and over again. And you, can, you and I can think of like a dozen examples, right? How many examples can you think of founders that have an idea, they build an app or a product, it's successful, the company grows in hyper growth. And then they successfully grow the company and manage it and are still running the company at 50 billion markup or higher. And like, like a huge organization It's a Fortune 500 company. Like how many examples are there? And it's not like, just like a total like disaster. (laughs) There's not a lot of examples. And the funny thing is that somebody once told me all companies start out differently, but once companies are really large, they're all kind of the same. The jobs are kind of the same, right? So if you were to start like a shoe company and I start like a housing company, someone else starts a milkshake company, like they all start differently, right? And they start as like the product and you're making it. But once you're all Fortune 500 companies, 90% of how you spend your time is actually pretty fungible and exactly the same, right? There is a specific product you're building, but almost all the principles and lessons become more and more similar. And I did not know at all how to manage. I didn't know how to run an organization. I didn't know how to ship things. We could have a whole podcast just about how to run and build a company. Yeah, sure. There are two pitfalls, and almost no one avoids one of these two pitfalls. Pitfall number one the company g- grows incredibly fast. You have an idea, it grows incredibly fast, and then it just becomes like a total clusterfuck. It's a total disaster, right? The cubby's not well run. It's like everything's breaking. It's totally crazy. And everyone's like, we need to get a grown up in there. And that's like problem number one. Problem number two is it's a big, old, bureaucratic organization. It's slow-moving. It's political. The people just think the job's nine to five. They don't really care. They're disconnected from the mission. And it's just like like if anyone listening has ever worked for a really large, old-school company that you didn't like, it might be like that. And it feels like there's very few companies in the world that can be in between. It can have a spirit. It can have like this insurgent spirit. But it can be actually well run and well organized. And I think that's part of what I spent the last ten years doing is learning how to be a CEO. I think being a founder is totally intuitive. You don't have to be you don't have to learn to be a founder. You just start. Being a CEO is something you have to actually learn. And I think I wish I knew how to be CEO back then,
1: you know, you started out during the Great Recession. Did that prepare you or arm you with any degree of knowledge? that, let's say, of the certainty of uncertainty as the pandemic set in in 2020?
0: You know, companies are not exactly like human beings, but there are some reasonable analogies to a human being. And I've never, I'm not a parent, but I do think that founders are almost like parents and they they love the company the way a parent would love a child. Like if anyone has, you talk to any founder and if they lose their company, it's like this incredibly traumatic period. And I think the other thing that's really critical is the circumstances of your birth are really important just like a real human being the way you were born into this world has some impact on you the circumstances of how a company is founded is important airbnb was founded in um august of 2008 if you remember what was going on in august 2008 that was the beginning of the financial crisis and so we could not raise any money i remember i was meeting with somebody who said the economy is so bad. We're not even investing in good companies. Why would we invest in Airbed and breakfast? <laughs> and so we had no access to capital. And at that time, it created a scrappiness. It created a sense of survival. I mean, when we got into Y Combinator, Paul Graham said one of the reasons he invested in us is he said, you are like cockroaches. You will not die. And we are looking for people who won't die because we're going to be an investment nuclear winter. And in a nuclear winter, the only thing that survives is a cockroach. And that's what we want. And so in other words, like, that's kind of the DNA. We were survivors. We were scrappy. We were hardcore. We knew how to operate without any money. And I think that forged the DNA. We were also kind of born in a crisis. And the other thing is that like most companies, a lot of companies have challenges because they get big. Facebook got a lot of scrutiny when it got big. Amazon got a lot of scrutiny when it got big. We got scrutiny when we were 10 people because we were operating in a three bedroom apartment and suddenly like we were like the internet moving your neighborhood and People had some challenges with that. And so at this really early age, our company had a ton of adversity. It was just, it seemed like an idea no one to fund. We couldn't raise money. There were a lot of challenges, but I think that made us really like, really tough and able to be resilient. And so I think when we lost 80% of our business in eight weeks, I think a lot of companies were paralyzed. They didn't know what to do. They froze. And a lot of companies didn't, we're not used to making decisions really quick, do or die decisions. And in a crisis, the number one thing you can do, I think, is move fast. But how do you move fast if you don't have data, right? If you're used to using data to make decisions, you are not gonna be able to handle a crisis because there's very little data available. And if you wait for data, it's like driving in a car, you're in a car chase. You can't wait for data to decide whether you turn left or right. You have to work much more quickly. In a crisis, you have to be really, therefore, in a crisis, you can't just make business decisions you have to make principal decisions. In other words, without data, if I don't know how something's gonna end, how do I wanna be remembered? And so you start orienting this. These are the kind of things that I learned from prior crisis. So in other words, we we were used to constraints. We had a very difficult birth. We had crisis after crisis after crisis. And so when 2020 came around, It was our defining moment, and we were ready to rise to the occasion because we had risen to occasions before. It wasn't new to us. And this was unique from other companies that didn't have to deal with all this in the past. And I used to think all these hardships we had and all these crises were kind of bad things. But actually, in hindsight, they prepared us for the biggest challenges to come.
1: Yeah. And we don't need to talk about the specific response to the pandemic. I think that's fairly well known. But Let's talk about your biggest learning of the past three years. How have you grown? How has the company grown? And what's changed over that time?
0: I mean, I've just, it's hard to know where to start. That's how many things have changed. (laughs) I mean, I'll just give you a quick summary. I think there's the company Airbnb before the pandemic, and there's Airbnb after the pandemic. Let me just start with a number, and I'll go back to how it happened. Before the pandemic, we were basically a breakeven company. In fact, the year before the pandemic, we had lost probably $250 million that year. So we were not profitable. We were close to break-even. In the last 12 months, this is a today number, in the last 12 months, we've done more than $3 billion of free cash flow, so we're, we're very profitable. That's just one number. So how did that happen? And there's many other things about our company that changed. What happened was, let me just tell you this quick story. In late 2019, I had this dream. This sounds like made up. It's real. I had this dream. <laughs> and this dream was, or this image I had in my head that i left Airbnb and it had been 10 years and I just came back. And I went on a hike with Joe and Nate, my co-founders in Bolinas, Joe has a house there. And on this hike, I tell them about this dream. And they said, well, tell me more of the dream. And I said, I came back and the company that we had was unrecognizable to the one we set out to start. And they said, what do you mean? I say, we're spending tons of money in performance marketing. People say it's hard to get stuff done. We have more and more, like, we're pursuing all these things that seem like they weren't core to our company. We used to say that design and creativity is the center of Airbnb, but, like, we're just doing, like, A-B tests galore, and everything's fragmented, and it just doesn't feel like the same spirit. And it just, there's not the same intensity. There's not the same kind of focus. And they said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I don't know. Because we're working on our S1, we're about to go public and making a bunch of changes before the IPO. Like, how do you even do that? But I had in my head the kind of imaginary company I thought we were going to start. And then the pandemic occurred. And we lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. And then suddenly we had to like, it was it was like a house. And it was like burning. And we had to rebuild the house. And that was the moment I realized, okay, I'm going to run the company totally differently. The way I've always wanted. I'm going to start stop. I'm going to stop asking for permission and do what I think, because I was trying to run the company the way I thought everyone else wanted. And by doing that, I think what was happening was no one actually liked it. And so then I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We were divisional. We were like Amazon. We had all these divisions. We're going to get rid of every division. We're going to be functional. We're going to have a marketing department, a sales department, a finance department, a design department. Now that sounds unique, Of the Fortune 500, take a guess how many companies are functional. I've heard of one. There might be more than one. Apple is famously functional. There's almost none. So we're going to be functional. The second thing is we're going to look at metrics, but we're not going to run the whole company off metrics. We're going to run the company off a calendar, a single roadmap. And we're going to use big ideas. We're going to ship these big ideas twice a year with these things called releases. And this is one of them that we're talking about. The next thing is we're turning off the majority of performance marketing. Performance marketing was like a drug and we were addicted to it. And the drug is basically buying keywords on Google to promote a commodity service. We're like, we're getting off that. We cut marketing in half, like today it's been half and it's more brand. Then I said, We're gonna be getting back to our roots of design and creativity. So we really focused all of our energy on developing these incredible, great products. And we stopped focusing on growth and we started focusing much more on creating a better user experience, which of course led to more growth. We basically created much more intensity. I cut out a lot of the bureaucracy in the company. I started auditing everything. I asked every executive to get in all the details. I expected everyone to be an expert in what they did. We removed layers of management. So in other words, just to summarize all this, I redesigned the company in a new image based on my learnings of 10 years. And that explains how we were able to do what we did. And what we really did at the end of the day was got back to our roots. We got back to being a startup. We got back to being creative, but in a way that was much more disciplined than ever before. And I think the lesson here is that founders wanna have control of their company. And so they try to have like control of the board. The real control a founder needs is controlling the execution of the company. And I was like two hands off. I was trying to empower people with autonomy only for people to feel disempowered. And I think leadership is not absence. Leadership is presence but I was worried that my presence would be viewed as meddling, as not trusting the team, as micromanaging. And then the problem was the crisis occurred and then suddenly I had to do it out of survival. And it worked so well, I said, I'm not gonna ever change how we're running the company. We're gonna keep doing it this way. And that's what we did. We redesigned the company from the ground up. A thousand of us got in a foxhole and we're able to like totally fix the company. And I think not only fix the company, but I think point it in a totally different direction. And now we develop products different than most every other company. Because we developed software kind of like hardware. We took the best of hardware, the best of software. We infused creativity. We stayed super functional. We have only 6,000 employees. We do nearly half a billion dollars in free cash for an employee. And by the way, I say all this, I'm a designer that went to art school at the Rhode Island School of Design. So the point is that design isn't just how something looks. Design is how something works. And I think you can design a better business and just be unapologetic about it. And that's exactly what we tried to do.
1: So you redesigned the company in 2020.
0: 100%.
1: And also went public, I mean, a year later. That's just, it's it's a wild story. All on
0: Zoom. I don't recommend that, by the way, for most people.
1: And you mentioned auditing everything along the way. Like, I can't even imagine the amount of work and also the amount of communication skills that internally that must have taken. How did you communicate all of this and all these big changes? Do you have any advice there? I mean, I know that it's not just the making the change. It is the making it happen, right?
0: I've got some really crazy suggestions on this part. First, let me just say that 2020, I don't recommend anyone recreate what I went through in 2020.
1: Probably what anyone went through. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Because it was 16 hours a day, seven days a week for a year. like, And I don't recommend that. And part of why it was that was because of things I'd done before that that I had to fix. So it was a learning lesson. I don't ever recommend this, but I'm glad I did it and it made us better. So here's what happened. One of the things I learned is in a crisis, you have to communicate. I'll make a number up like four times as frequently as a non-crisis, right? Things felt like they were moving four times as fast. So you had to communicate four times as much. So here's what I did. I have nine people on the board, I guess nine, including me. So eight others. I talked to every board member every week. Usually you're lucky to talk to a board member every quarter. I talked to every executive every day, every single day. I talked the entire company every week. So, and we had weekly board meetings. We had a board meeting every Sunday. It was a check-in. So I, I basically, the reason why is I said, I'm going to make like, three months of changes every week and we have board meeting every three months. So now we're going to have a quick check in every week because every week I'm telling you about three months worth of changes I made. And so what I did is I got everyone together first the board and I said, I'm going to make a ton of changes. I'm going to move too quickly. I can't run them all by you. So let's agree on the kind of changes I want to make. The general principles. So I wrote out a bunch of principles. I said, number one principle, we're going to act fast. Number two, we're going to conserve cash. Number three, we're going to act with all stakeholders in mind. We want to be remembered not as villains of this crisis, but as people that stepped on the right thing. And fourth, we're going to play to win the next travel season. So in other words, when people were predicting we were going to out of business, we were already figuring out how can we win next travel season? It was a mentality. The next thing I said is I wanted to change the psychology organization because people were like, oh my God, why us? And I said, no, 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 not why us, it's watch us. So I said, this crisis is our defining moment. And here's a real good trick. If anything ever happens to you in your life, it's really bad. Imagine how do I want to be remembered in history? Now, maybe history is just three people. Maybe you're not going to be a historical figure. But if you separate yourself from that moment and you say, how do I want to be remembered? You suddenly can change your psychology. Because the psychology of leader becomes the psychology organization. And if you think you're screwed, people say, well, you have the most information, so we must all be screwed. But if you as a leader are optimistic, then suddenly that optimism can permeate the entire company. And so that was the psychology. Then came the actual communication. Here's a crazy thing. I stopped using email. I don't use email today. I mean, some people send me emails, but I do not communicate via email. I stopped using it. So what did I do? text message. I ran the company through text message and phone calls. I text 40 to 50 people a day and I prefer text message. Not everyone likes it and not every company, but I do not like email. I think it's just not, uh, I think emails are their purpose, but I think they're not a good way for communication. So we did a lot of Zooms. We don't have a meeting from one to two o'clock. We'd have a meeting at one and we go till we solve the problem. And if the meeting at two ended at two, if then at 10 p.m., end at 10 p.m. This is in the crisis. Like you, you just stay in the meeting till you solve it. And then I was in constant contact. I would text people. I would call people like night and day. And that to me was a much better system than lots of like email communications. So that's what I recommend. Lots of communication on as intimate pro platforms as you can do four times as frequent.
1: I love that. If it's longer than a sentence, it has to become a meeting, sort of. Yeah, exactly. If it can't be a text, it's not an email in between. And
0: and again, there are like really deep things, but deep things are probably conversations. Or you write a document, and then you can share it with people. But email was this weird thing. So I think the big takeaway is I just mostly have stopped using email. I use a little bit of it, but I think as little email as possible is the best email.
1: Great. So tell me about the, the reprioritization of these two launches every year, just doing two big releases instead of, say, having, you know, 30 different priorities in a year. How did implementing that go and, and what is coming up now?
0: The basic insight is that software development in Silicon Valley has reached a local maximum. Like you ever pick up your phone and I want you to look at all the apps in your phone, okay, do this. And I want you to ask yourself a question. How much have each of these apps changed in the last year? In the 2000s, like there was a new iPod every year and it was really different than the last iPod and you had to have it because it was so much better. Like, I remember that. Remember the Apple the iPhone and then the 3G came out it was way better and the 3GS and then the 4 and each model was way better. How many apps are like that? Where each year it's way better than the year before. Could you even open, look at 10 apps in your home screen. Do you know anything that's changed about those 10 apps in the last year? And the average person couldn't even tell you. And so the problem is that the way product development is done in Silicon Valley is it used to be done like product, a like hardware. And then people realize actually software is very freeing. We have ubiquity of data and we can basically, instead of having one roadmap, we can have a hundred roadmaps because we can have these people called product managers and product managers are like these cells in the body. They have all the data and they can try to make a quote impact on the business. I put impact in air quotes you know what company that comes from. And the problem with that is the strategy for most software companies or a lot of software companies isn't really a strategy. A lot of stra- software companies strategy is to grow. It's to hit a metric. And then the PMs are running the product or there's they, something called product group areas, right? They're really just PMs that are in charge and they identify whatever project they can come up with to move the needle on that metric. Now this sounds good, right? Like it sounds you can move quickly and we're not gonna have a coordinated mode map because it's much faster just to free everyone. So this is the theory. And, and by the way, everything's measurable so we can test everything. And we can put out two versions, an A version and a B version, and we can test A versus B. But this is where a lot of software development goes. Now let's imagine we were designing a car. Let's take a Tesla, because I know Tesla does not do it like this. Now let's imagine there's a hundred different teams or 10 teams. And let's imagine the wheel team has their own strategy, and their strategy is to drive more sales. So they're going to do A-B tests to try to figure out the right wheel. But then they found this new wheel, but now the tire team has to adapt to their wheel, but they're on a different roadmap. And so they can't do something. But if they did, now that wheel and that tire is bigger, so now you need a bigger body of the car. So now the car body team has to like change the body, but now the body's heavier, so now you need a heavier battery. But to have a, or a bigger battery, but a more powerful battery, you need to manufacture a different battery, so you need to have a totally different factory built. But this factory now needs, like, more money. And so you need to go to the CFO, but the CFO said, but we told investors this other thing. You see what I'm saying? I guess the point is that if you want to do something big, you've got to do it together. People see one product. They see one app. And so ultimately, I came to the conclusion that if you are just having these decoupled teams autonomously, A-B testing everything, then all they're doing is reaching local maximums, trying to grow, and the overall product is going to not change and not improve. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to develop software a little more like hardware. Now, I want to be clear. We do ship software every single day. We have two big releases, but we make fixes and we do A-B testing. But we don't do a lot of A-B testing. We don't ship tons of stuff every day. We try to contain it so we can do really big releases. We do a few big things a year. It's on a calendar. Everyone can plan their year. We have a, a, a pipeline of the next two years of innovation. And then what we're able to do is because we have these two releases, we can drive all the world's attention to these products. Then we get a week of PR, but most importantly, all of our marketing is not buying just Google keywords or doing brand campaigns. We're actually marketing the products. So we launched Categories and AirCover last year in May, our advertising as the new products. A lot of people at tech companies don't want to work on new things because no one knows about it and they'll never use it because there's no commitment to marketing the innovations. And so this was a big insight, that product and marketing should be integrated like a chef and a waiter at a restaurant. And if the waiter isn't allowed in the kitchen and isn't allowed to cook the dish with the chef and the chef doesn't ever go out and talk to customers, then the food isn't gonna be as good as if they're totally integrated. And this is exactly what we did. And I think, by the way, if somebody's listening, they probably say, well, it sounds like interesting, but it sounds like a bottleneck. It sounds like you can't ship as fast. Here's the thing. We did 150 upgrades and innovations in the last 18 months through this process. In other words, this sounds totally counterintuitive, but this way you can actually move faster than if you empower everyone to do their own thing. Now, why is this? This is not true in small companies, but in big companies it's true. Because if you have 100 teams going in different directions, they are basically stepping on each other. They're all hitting the same platforms, infrastructure, payments, marketing. Then there's this long batch of tickets. There's no prioritization. And it's like a car that's turning left, turning right, turning left, turning right. So there's no momentum behind anything. So that is why I think there's a totally another way to develop software in Silicon Valley, which is much more like hardware. It's not exactly like hardware. You take the best of both worlds. You don't just A-B test and throw things against the wall and see what fits and go in 10 different directions. The whole company goes in one direction.
1: There's, I mean, there's also something psychologically good about rowing in one direction, right? In terms of uniting the team and making everyone feel like they know the goal for the next, say, six months. 100%. Have you found that as well?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was the weirdest thing. People used to tell me they don't understand the strategy of the company. This is before the pandemic. So I would communicate the strategy of the company and I have all these like, strategy decks. And it was funny. The more I talked about strategy, the more feedback I got that they didn't understand about strategy what the strategy was. (laughs) That's amazing. Then the other thing people said is, it's really hard to work here. So the more time I spent like trying to educate people about how to work in the system, the less they understood it. In other words, it turned out the reason people, it was hard to work here. And the reason no one understood the strategy was because we weren't rowing in one direction. It was like how a lot of companies had done it.
1: Right, that's fascinating. So tell me really quickly though, what you have rowed toward, what is launching um, this month?
0: We do basically a summer and winter release. The summer release is May, obviously start, summer starts in June, so we, we do the seasonal release before the season starts. The winter release is November, so it's a month before winter. Obviously on May 11th, last year we launched, you probably heard of categories, Airbnb categories, that was the big thing. So this winter release is, um, we are launching really a couple big things. This one's more about host. It's really more about getting more homes on Airbnb. And the reason why is we think we're expecting record demand on Airbnb. In other words, even though a lot of consumers have pulled back spending, it's really interesting. A lot of companies missed Q3 guidance, except for travel companies. Travel companies are still doing well. Because even as the economy slows, people still want to travel. And the reason I think people still want to travel is because they want to get out of the house. Because their, their office is Zoom, the mall is Amazon, the theater is Netflix, and they're like, I still have to get a house. And travel is a great way to do that. So they're still traveling, especially on Airbnb, they're still working out of Airbnbs, living at Airbnbs, and we're either in a recession or approaching this recession. And so I think that's gonna also be an opportunity for people to start putting their homes in Airbnb because we were found in a recession and it's a great way to make extra money. And so we thought, wow, this is a real opportunity for us to basically make it much easier to put their home on Airbnb. And we asked people, why don't you put your home on Airbnb, like the average person? And most people have brought up two big concerns. There's others, but two big ones. The first is they just don't quite know how to get started and need help. The second is they're nervous about having other people in their home. These are two top reasons. There are others, but these are two top. So we said, well, what if we address each of these? And so what if we designed one product for each? So that's what we did. The first is hard to get started. Now there's an easy way with Airbnb Setup. Airbnb Setup is what it sounds like, an easy way to set up your Airbnb. And we thought, what's the easiest way to set up your Airbnb? We looked at like, say, the Genius Bar with Apple. And that was a good source of inspiration or retail stores. And there's somebody that can help you. And we thought, what if the best way to learn something was from somebody who's done it before you? With Airbnb Setup, you can basically get paired. We have 1,500 super hosts all over the world. We match you based on a few questions to the right super host to you. And we built this custom integration where you can basically like Zoom. It's kind of like FaceTime through the app, through the Airbnb app. You can share your screen with them. They can walk you through the process. They can help you step-by-step to get you your first booking. And it's really pretty fun. So that's Airbnb setup. And that will make it much easier to get started. The second thing is provide more protection because people are nervous by having other people in their home. So we launched an upgrade to AirCover. AirCover is protection that we give hosts. And we added even more air cover. So number one, we are now starting next spring. We are going to verify the identity of a hundred percent of guests booking Airbnb. I think now lately, verified identity is a very hot topic. If you followed like Twitter, well, we've already verified the identity of a hundred million people already in Airbnb, and so we are going to now scale this to every single person booking, and we're also going to eventually verify the identity of every host. So that's the first thing. Then we built this reservation screening technology. It's basically this machine learning model that looks through a billion prior stays in Airbnb. And it looks at like when there were parties, when there weren't. And we found a lot of patterns of like behaviors that lead to parties. You're basically, we're able to use machine learning to predict a party. We don't predict it all the time, but this technology reduces the party incidents by about 40%. We piloted in Australia, it works. So we're now rolling this out to US and Canada and it's gonna be rolled out globally. And then finally, we're adding more protection for your home. We're gonna increase damage protection from a million dollars to $3 million. And what we're really trying to do, Christine, is we wanna get more regular people to put their real homes in Airbnb. Yes, we welcome property managers and dedicated rentals, but I think the core of Airbnb are everyday people putting up the homes they live in on Airbnb, and I think making it easier to get started and offering more protection through Airbnb Setup and upgrades to air cover are what we're going to do. And if we do all this, I think this is going to be an economic lifeline for a number of people to make extra money, and it should provide some really cool places to stay next travel season. So that's what we're doing.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I heard from a source that you make these things personal, that uh, this is not just something that kind of you're theoretically putting out to the world for everyone else, but that you are also renting your own home this coming season. Is that right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I try to always, um, I don't know what the term is, like dog fooding might be one version of that term. Right, it's, a, right. it's a funny term, like I eat right. the dog food you manufacture. Eat your
1: own dog food. <laughs>
0: yeah. Eat your own dog food. Just to use an analogy, I was living on Airbnb in the beginning of the year. I did, wasn't in San Francisco. I was staying in from Airbnb to Airbnb. I stayed in a dozen and a half homes. And from my experience living in Airbnb, we created Airbnb categories. Because I realized, wow, like we should have a different way of searching that wasn't a search box. We should just allow you to view by category, like more of a browse functionality, because that's what I wanted. So this time I said, I want to become a host. I haven't been a host in a a number of years. And I said, I'm going to be a host. And I want to figure out like what would make it really easy for me to get started, but also what kind of protections I want. And so I decided to list my own home that I live in, not a second home, my actual house that I live in, in San Francisco on Airbnb. It's a two-bedroom house. I live in one of the bedrooms, and the other bedroom is a guest room. And so somebody's going to be sleeping on a floor above me in the house while I'm there. And yeah, I'm going to be listing it, and I'll be taking reservations in January. Making it real, I think, makes it much better. I mean, here's another lesson. So many CEOs run a company by spreadsheet and by metrics. And I think metrics are great, but you need to know what the metrics mean. And if you only look at the metrics without context, then that's a problem. And remember, every number is of a person usually. I mean, most metrics are of people. And so you gotta be very careful about people becoming numbers and getting emotionally detached from the things you're doing. And I think the best antidote to that, well, the second best antidote to that is to talk to the customer. But the best antidote is to be the customer. And I think this is intuitive if you're starting like a messaging app, you can just message all day. It's harder when it's a travel company or, you know, you got to like put yourself in the shoes. But I think it's really important.
1: When we come back, I'll talk with Brian about something very surprising that has been a huge relief to him. But first, a quick break. I want to ask you about being a public company. Um, it's a tough time for tech companies to be watching the stock market right now. Um, you might not even know that, you know, Airbnb just had its, what, biggest and most profitable quarter ever yeah. um, by by looking at that ticker. So how do you, I mean, how does that affect you and, and your leadership? And how do you manage all the new um, stakeholders that you have?
0: You know, I'm going to say something that might sound kind of counterintuitive and unexpected, but running a public company is hard it's not nearly as hard as running a travel company in a pandemic. I think as hard as it is to run a public company, it might be even harder to run a late-stage private company. I mean, like when you're a $30 billion private company, which was what we were before public. Why? At that stage, we're covered like a public company. We had beat reporters. We had to have like an audit committee. We had to have like a lot of committees. So in other words, we had a lot of the downsides of being public as a late-stage private company, but we didn't have the upside. And because we weren't totally transparent, because we were private, we didn't share all financials. I think there was this sense that like, people were never getting the full story. Well, like, maybe they weren't. And so I mean, there, there, there's an old saying, the absence of information is filled with dirt. And so I think there was just all sorts of questions about our company. And the moment we became public, I think all the questions were answered. Whether they like the answers or not is up to them that they choose to buy the stock, but the questions were answered. And it actually became oddly easier for me to run public company than either a travel company pandemic or a late stage private company because those two things are no picnic either and yeah people could say yeah that's because you're doing well yeah but we also like lost a bunch of market cap this year and i gotta say like we've been really focused and so i don't think it's affected us too much you know we try to focus on what we can control and so what we control is deliver record earnings every quarter and that's what we're going to do and so That's what we've done. And I think it's just been helpful to like have real accountability. I mean, I think accountability generally makes you better.
1: That's so interesting. It almost sounds like when you're speaking that there's a weight off your shoulders rather than a new one on them.
0: Again, this sounds crazy, but I have less pressure as a public company CEO than I did as a private company CEO, a late stage private company CEO. There's less pressure today than before I went public. Again, because like the dynamics were very unusual where we had all the downsides of being a public company without the upsides.
1: So fascinating. Thank you so much, Brian, for being here with me today.
0: Oh, thank you so much.
1: After speaking with Brian, what has stuck with me was that he's not exactly humble. He knows precisely the rarity of his accomplishment of still running his company that he founded 15 years ago. At its size. And he knows just the challenge that he's been through in taking that company, tearing apart most of its internal structures and rebuilding them mid pandemic, and preparing the company to tell all to its shareholders and go public less than a year later. But he's not too proud to keep doing the things a founder should testing his own product, being the customer, staying in Airbnbs, and hosting his own Airbnb. Even if it's a publicity stunt, it's a good one. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you can spare just a minute, please do leave us a review. You can also let us know what you think about our shows by dropping me a note at com. Our producer, who, like Airbnb, has an insurgent spirit but is actually well-run and well-organized, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.